Hello, everyone. My name is Joe McManus. I'm a shareholder of Carlton Fields Law Firm, um, uh, heading up the government contract office here in Washington, D.C., and part of the construction practice group. Um, I'm also president of Sentinel Consulting, LLC, which is one of three Carlton Fields consultancies. Um, Sentinel is, uh, is a consultancy of full service for the construction and real estate industries. Um, I'm uh, very happy to have, oh, this is, a, um, this is a, the first of a series of podcasts um, dealing with government contracts. Uh, specifically, uh, on these early podcasts, we're dealing with the, the transition from the commercial world to the government world. Um, as uh, as, as uh, the commercial world uh, starts to shrink as a result of, of COVID, uh, people tend to gravitate or will be gravitating into the government contract arena, uh, which is an arena which is um, full of uh, benefits and, and potholes at, at the same time. Uh, I'm very happy to have as my first guest uh, for these podcasts, uh, Judge Paul Williams, uh, formerly Chief Judge of the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. Um, government contracts, um, <laughs> although they're incapable of, of division, all right, falls into, there are three basic aspects of government contracting. There's the, there's the getting the contract phase, there's the uh, administration phase, and there's the, the wrap-up, the conclusion phase. And um, uh, we'll be dealing with all, all three of those. Um, uh, primarily, uh, we'll be uh, probably focusing most heavily on the contract admin phase, uh, which is, um, um, it, we believe, is a nice introduction into uh, your introduction to, to government contracts. So, Judge Williams, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, would you care to um, comment or criticize any of my early comments here on, the, uh, on our, what we're doing? I told you I'm going to save my criticism for private talk, okay? Uh, I'm really delighted to be here, and I agree with you that uh, a number of contracts would like, contractors would like to migrate into the federal contracting system or state systems. That's where the money is. Uh, however, there are a lot of pitfalls, and just with a few words from yourself and myself, I think we can save a lot of people a lot of trouble. Okay. What about the... Um... Um, what about the the getting the contract phase? Um, you know, I mean, uh, um, years ago there was just bidding; everything was hard bid. Um, it, it, the, the project was designed, right, and uh, you're just going to fight with everybody else, uh, and the low bidder gets it. As long as you're responsible and responsive, you get it, and, and that that has changed. So, could you could you give us your perspectives on on uh, on obtaining government contracts. What I find is that for the contracts that you're implying other than sealed bidding, a lot of that is done by the bigger companies and they generally have the necessary support, et cetera, to be aware of the complications of the uh, regulations and the statutes and, and the pitfalls. Uh, but there's a lot of that that they have to be very careful just as like sealed bidding, that they have to file a timely bid uh, they have to negotiate, and I don't have a whole lot more to say in a podcast like this on, on those uh, particular problems, but I think it's the smaller contracts or the smaller contractors who are trying to get themselves their first contract uh, that we're going to focus on because those will show you 
what easy problems to avoid, but easy problems to also uh, step into and lose work or have a dangerous contract that they become the victim of uh, having to spend a lot of money and losing a lot of money. What about, you know, in the commercial arena, <laughs> the, uh, the, the low bidder or the most responsible, responsive person, you know, um, cannot get the job. Uh, uh, he may or may not get the job. And, um, um, but in the government contract arena, we have, we've got the ability to have bid protests. And, and could you just give us a little, uh, a little window into the bid protest arena here? First of all, a lot of times when someone thinks they should get the award and they don't, uh, the problems are easy to analyze. They don't file timely. They don't include all the required documents. There are a lot of these contracts which tell you specifically and will highlight more than once, you must include these certain documents with your bid. And if you miss that, you're in deep trouble. Uh, because the, the, the law basically is designed to protect the, uh, the public, uh, the fiscal. Uh, you can't have just anybody getting into the government money. And they're to protect the contracting community so that you aren't able to take advantage of bidding after the fact or changing your bid after the closing date. And so all of these little things can lead to someone who thinks they're timely and they don't get the award, and then they have to see what their options are. So it'd be the, the second low bidder who would be protesting and, 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 and saying to the government that this person was not fully responsive to the solicitation. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. You know, when, when, when uh, we first talked about this podcast, Judge Williams, you know, I said, what do you, what do you think is the, sort of the, the, um, the biggest issue out there for people making the transition? And you, and you, you said authority. <laughs> authority was the big issue. Uh, or yes. a, a big issue. So could, could you give us some, um, some enlightenment on, on, on that comment there? You and I have discussed this before, that it's very difficult for a contractor to know who they're dealing with and what authority that individual has. Uh, we were laughing uh, in a conversation we had is that there are so many individuals with titles. You can have a contracting officer, and the acronym is CO, or uh, an administrative contracting officer, uh, an ACO, or a termination for contracting officer, or you can have representatives, like a contracting officer's technical rep. And so we get lost with all these acronyms. But the issue is, who has what authority? And often, a number of people don't know what actual authority they have. Some agencies give authority, which means essentially to be able to uh, handle money and make decisions whether you accept products, etc., and whether you're going to issue changes to the contract. But they give somebody a certificate they can hang on their wall, and it shows they're authorized to make these decisions up to a certain dollar threshold. But other times, it comes with the nature of the job. Whatever they're doing, it's assumed that they have to manage this contract and that they have authority, but you don't know to what extent. And so I always caution people, if you're dealing with someone and you don't know what their authority, and I've had cases when you ask the government representative, show me your authority, they can't. They don't really know what the ultimate limit is. And I guess the pitfall there is that the only people who can bind the government fiscally are contracting officers. Yes. And, and uh, so... So when, 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 a, when a contractor shows up with a job and he meets a, a, uh, a person who's, who, who's announced that he's the ARCO 
ARCO, the authorized representative of the contracting officer, they, they should ask to see his warrant to find out if, in fact, he's got the, the power to, to bind the government. That's true. But you don't want to start by kicking in doors and saying, show me. So you have that relationship you have to be careful with. It is, you know, but it's, it's, it's a more difficult world, you know. you know. Years ago, it was no problem identifying the contracting officer because it was the full colonel who was there at the job site with, his, um, with the eagles on his shoulders. All right, who told you he was the contracting officer, and that's, uh, that's, all you need, that's all you needed to know. I've had a case before me where there is a, a relatively new contracting officer who does have a warrant, and she's dealing with a contractor who insists that she issue a change order on some work that uh, the government is asking to be done, and the contractor is saying it's not required. And he's pressuring, and it happens to be a young lady, and he's pressuring her, and she is insisting that uh, she's not going to issue a change. She doesn't believe it's a change. So what does he do? He says, I know how to take care of this. I'm going to your boss. And he has the boss come over, and the boss tells this young lady, this is a change. You will issue a change order. And she tells him, I am the contracting officer. You're my boss, but you do not have a warrant. I do. If I issue that decision, then my name is on there, not yours. And I don't feel it's correct. And I give her full credit for doing that because I can tell you in that particular case, uh, the boss was overbearing and he was incorrect. The work that was being required, from my point of view, was contract work that should have been performed. There should not have been a change issued. So it shocked me. That's the first time that I encountered a situation where a contracting officer's boss did not have a warrant to proceed uh, so, interesting case. It just shows you the hardship. My remedy for most of this stuff is if you have any doubt at all, and you're the contractor, that you're dealing with an authorized official, you need to write letters and make sure they go to someone up the chain who is authorized. Clearly, the head of a department, or you can find someone less than that. But you need to make sure the government is put on notice. Because if you don't give them notice, and you're dealing with someone who's not authorized, you're in trouble. So that resident engineer who's who's there on the job site every day is a, is not is not the person who's going to be issuing the change to you. Correct. He may issue the directive to do the work, but he won't issue the formal paper because you need someone who's authorized. And if you're authorized, you have to have the money. That's another thing that people don't understand. I, as a county officer, cannot issue a change order unless there's money in the till. You know, you mentioned the word change. That sort of brings up the um, the federal acquisition regulations, all right, um, and um, which is a and change obviously is a is a contract clause in the uh, that's set forth in the in in the FAR. Um, you um, tell us about the FAR and and how is a how is a contractor supposed to wade into it and uh, and and what is it its importance in the in the contract administration phase. Well, the FAR is the Federal Acquisition Reg, so it's where the regulations are. And it certainly would let you know what's required, uh, both uh, statutory requirements, regulatory requirements, and all kinds of requirements on how you make awards, what type of contracts you can award, and all kinds of clauses. There is an issue with the FAR, is that if you have a contract and a required clause that should be in the contract is inadvertently left out, the FAR basically tells you if it's required clause, even if it's not in your contract, you are required to follow that clause. So you can have a contractor who is being told to do something 
in the contract, and he says the clause that would require me to do it isn't there, so I don't have to. But it is there by operation of law. The FAR is very difficult to follow for newcomers, very difficult to understand, uh, very complicated, and it's broken down into all the areas of you know, how to award contracts, how to administer them, what have you. But uh, you, you are going to need help if this is your first time in the, in the wagon to have to deal with government contracts. And one of the things you really need to follow, there are a number of requirements which require you to provide things, notice, etc., with specific dates. And you better be aware of this and follow those requirements because there may be ways to overcome them, but it just makes you, your job much harder. You need to provide op, uh, opportunity to the government to uh, find out what you're doing, and if there's a problem, uh, they can deal with you. And if you don't give them that notice, then they can easily dismiss a lot of your problem areas and say you have to eat them because you didn't give us adequate notice. Yeah, I, I think that you pointed out, I really do. The contractor who's waiting in needs to, needs to get an assistance, for example, to find out what clauses are implied. <laughs> needs to look, because as you pointed out, you may have a listing, you will have a listing in your contract or your subcontract of the quote, the, the, the clauses that are, quote, in your contract, but they don't have a listing of the implied <laughs> The, the implied clauses, all right? So they're, they're going to need help there. I mean, it's it's like, it sounds like, it, well, we government contract lawyers think of ourselves as what we call far, we're far freaks is what we are <laughs> because we, we wade, we wade into the far every day, all right? But, um, you know, it's like for new contractors, like trying to, you know, write a, um, to file a tax return and not, not knowing and never having looked at a tax code. <laughs> and it's daunting to look at it. And then you see, in addition to that, you're dealing with whatever government agency and you find out that, OK, I can figure out who's got the authority and I can see uh, what that would do in terms of if there's additional work or I have other problems. But lo and behold, you find out that you're also dealing with all kinds of government agencies. When you have that government contract, you're going to have to deal with Department of Labor to make sure that you're paying the proper wages that are required, the Environmental Protection Agency. You're going to have clauses in your contract that frequently require uh, certain activities because of the environment. Uh, you have uh, the Small Business Administration. Uh, it's just you deal with city and state. You know, I've had contracts that I'm dealing with, uh, say, construction of a high-rise building in New York City, and there's an issue where the government, federal, and state don't get along. You need to have water brought into that building. It's a contractor's responsibility to deal with the state. But they also have to deal with the federal government, who are sort of feuding between themselves. And that just delays and disrupts and costs money. Uh, so you can't just find an individual who can sit down and say, what's your problem? I got it. Here's the decision. Move on. Yeah, I've had, I've, I've had a similar situation dealing with, for example, a Corps of Engineers contract. All right. But the EPA has got regulations and they say, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. And how do you best get those cases resolved? Do they call you? Judge Williams, you know, and, and for, for consultation on how to, how to get those resolved or what? You know, I have had situations where that's occurred, but normally what takes place is it's a gradual problem you're hoping to resolve between yourselves and the immediate government people you're dealing with. And unfortunately, some of it goes on forever, and you have problems with people you never expected to have. And by that time, you've incurred a lot of money, delay, disruption, and that's when they start knocking on doors to file claims or to look for mediators. 
As an example, I had a case where contractor is building a road, designs it, builds it, whatever it is, and he has to match uh, a bridge over a, a little creek nearby. And so he builds it, and the government comes in and says, you didn't put this big metal shield with the design, etc. And the contractor says, why should I put that thing on there? You can't even see that bridge from the highway. It's because fish and game want all the bridges over that creek to be identical. So in comes this work, which is probably between $100,000, $150,000 to do just for decorative purposes. And who would have thought that it was a fish and game person that was going to make the decision of go, no go to continue with that work? Just, it's mind-boggling at times. And most contractors just can't wrap their minds around it. So they need to be aware of this is a possibility. Uh, get it on the table early. And if you've got problems with environment or what have you, uh, get them on the table so you may have to do things uh, to change the location, or direction, whatever it is, to make sure you're not hitting some environmental situation where you're impinging on whatever, the local collection of birds or mice or different animals or different species of uh, plants. Well, two, two points. You, one is, is you mentioned other agencies and, and, and the contractors who are waiting in need to know, for example, that there, it, it's not just the FAR, but you could also have the DFAR, <laughs> right? Which is various agencies have their own supplemental regulations. Yes, and by DFARs, you mean the Defense Federal Acquisition Risk. Exactly right, yeah. A lot of the civilian agencies sort of take a lot of their information they're getting from the regulations from the military, and that's what they build their regulations on. For many years, it was the Department of Defense that was ahead of the regulation curve. Okay. So they get they need they need to be they need to be aware that there's agency regulations which may be applicable too in addition in addition to the FAR. So yes. if they're in a especially in a claim situation, you better check them both out. Um, we talked and we talked about the changes clause. Um, uh, to me, the changes clause is sort of the heart of the administration uh, of, of government contract administration, and um, I've always loved government contracting because it has. The, the, the concept of the constructive change, all right? Can you, can you give us a, a little education on, on constructive changes and what are, the, what are they? Sure. So the government, very frequently, you'll never have a perfect set of specs and drawings, and a lot of times, to clarify things, they have to issue changes. We would call those formal change orders. Uh, hopefully, you sit down, you negotiate a price, you incorporate in the contract, the contractor does the work. However, you have these other activities that can lead to a change that that was not the intended purpose. By a government activity, an individual, whatever it is, they are changing the work or the performance, the method of operation, whatever. They're causing changes and they're doing it by direction as opposed to by issuing a formal change to the contract. When they do that, as a general rule, they're not looking to pay for any more money. And they don't understand that there may be a real impact on the contract door that delays, disrupts, and causes additional cost. So you're in a situation where it's clear that if the government, by their actions, uh, caused some sort of additional work, the contractor should be entitled to recover that money. And he makes a, I take it he makes a, a what we talk, call a claim, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yes. So when you do that, one of the issues that you have is that the government may tell this contractor, you're wrong, this is not additional work. And the contractor may say, I'm not wrong, it's not required work, and I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stop work. 
And that in the government contract is deadly. If the government issues a change to the contract, the contractor is required by the terms of the contract to continue working. That's not something you'll find in most commercial contracts. Yeah, and, and it's called the, the if if you can't if they can't get a bilateral change, meaning that both sides agree to it, uh, they can issue a unilateral change, which is which is the vehicle that happens not infrequently in government contracting. They issue the unilateral change, which is you must do the work, and they will pay you your the fair amount. All right, subject to you know, later discussion, uh, if if in fact it's uh, it's it's not a fair amount. Yes. So that for a contractor to be told that he has to continue working and he's not going to get paid for it and he can't stop, uh, some do, and therefore their contract gets terminated. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's let's, let's follow that up, okay? Because you you mentioned a few days ago when we were chatting about uh, about clauses, you mentioned them. You mentioned the termination clauses, all right? And uh, can you tell us how they how they operate uh, and and what a contractor can. Uh, can um, understand uh, or appreciate about about the termination articles. Yes. Uh, basically, there are two types of terminations. Every time we talk about something, y- you can find all kinds of exceptions, etc. But there are two types. One is a termination for default, because it's generally the contractor has uh, gotten themselves into a position where they dispute the work or they're not able to complete on time. Uh, they may have excuses for it. So the government comes in and says, you haven't delivered or you're not going to be able to deliver on time. We terminate your contract. Then there's a termination for convenience where the government may terminate the contract. And basically, the government cannot default. It would be very hard to ever find a contract where the government is actually terminating uh, for default and going to be responsible for all the costs that flow from that. Uh, essentially, the government will terminate for convenience, and often those end up with a claim, and it's disputed. It either is resolved by the parties at some point, or it goes into litigation, and we can talk later about what the options are for litigation. But with the termination for convenience, the government is going to uh, terminate the contract, and they're going to pay the contract door, and so they will get uh, their cost, et cetera, uh, and you can also get to the termination for convenience article uh, as re- if, if, in fact, they're getting into a fight. <laughs> you have to go, for example, to the Board of Contract Appeals, which you were the chair, you know, and it's determined there that the termination was for default was wrongful. And Absolutely. being wrongful, it's converted to a termination for convenience. Uh, I, I had that I had that uh, case in um not too very long ago in, uh, in Florida, a contractor was building a, a road through the, the Everglades and the government um, had represented that he was going to have certain underlayment available there on job site. And it, it turned out that it wasn't there. The government and he got into a fight and they terminated him for default. And um, he had, by the way, only a high school education and real, he ended up um, taking on the government. And rather than having to pay the government $3 million is what they wanted, he ended up recovering $2.5 million because that was his cost and a reasonable profit on it. Okay, it was converted. It was converted from a ter- termination for default to a termination for convenience by, by virtue of the Board of Contract Appeals. One of the oh. issues with the termination for uh, default, uh, for example, is a contractor can be delivering widgets. And he delivers some widgets. He has another order to deliver 
and it has to be by uh, 1 February. And the contractor has some problems, and you can't deliver by 1 February. He's going to be three days late, one day late. Meanwhile, the government discovers they have widgets in the warehouse galore. They don't need any more. They'd like to terminate this contract, but it's going to be expensive. And lo and behold, when the contractor is one day late, the government can run in and say, you failed to deliver, you violated the contract, you're hereby terminated for default. In the commercial world, that would be almost unheard of to be one day late. Now, under those circumstances, you're going to find where, if you're in the dispute before a judge, uh, you're going to find we're warm and wonderful people. We, we find that abhorrent to think that you can deliver uh, one day late and be told, we're not going to take it now. So there are a lot of those tough situations with terminations that are way beyond what you'd find in a commercial world. No, I'm saying, and, and you bump into a new contracting officer on a termination for convenience. You ended up with a, a TCO, a terminating contractor officer, who's, yes. who's, who's, supposed to, who's, who's supposed to be organizing the file and making sure that you're getting paid your costs that you've now presented in a termination settlement proposal. With the terminations, you can have a contractor who can be shocked by the rules, regulations, the fire, etc. Because in addition to being one day late, you can have a situation where they come in and they admit we're a day late. But you know what? It's not me. It's my subcontractor. They didn't get the product to me so that I could get it to you on time. It's not me. And the government would say, you are responsible for all the delays for your subcontractors at any tier. So if you have someone who can't get the material because they can't afford it and they're four tiers down, so they can't deliver to the third tier and they could deliver to the second tier and get it to the prime. Uh, that's too bad. The government is going to put that burden on the prime contractor's shoulder. And a lot of contractors just can't understand how they can be at risk for. You know, and, and the nice thing about terminate for the government's perspective, the nice thing about terminations for convenience is they can terminate for any reason, any reason, you know, uh, absent true bad faith, which is very difficult to prove. And I, and I noticed that. Um, when the COVID first hit, uh, the GSA had a, had a very uh, good um, set of advice to their contracting officers. They said, hey, you know, if you may want to you, you may want to exercise your, your termination rights under termination for convenience. Because if, if in fact, they were going to be liable for delay damages, right? If mm -hmm. they, 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 the government could figure it's a lot cheaper to terminate the contract early here. Okay, and um, and be only paying the contractor for his actual actual cost to date. So, um, what about we also talked? And you mentioned uh, in addition to in addition to the um, authority issue, you mentioned notice and how important notice is on on, on gov in government contracting. Can you explain? Educate us on that. Well, there are different kinds of notice, but you can read them in your clauses. So that's why you have to read the clauses in your contract. Uh, but for example. Uh, in terms of notice, even when you file a claim, uh, when the contract, we'll talk about this later, but the contracting officer will issue a decision that we deny your claim. And they will give you maybe 30, 60 days, whatever they give you, depending on the agency, etc. They'll give you that notice, and you must meet that deadline. If you are required to give notice in 60 days and you do it in 61, even if you have a valid claim, you've just lost in all likelihood. It's highly, highly unlikely. As an example, uh, I was aware of a case of where a contractor is filing a notice of appeal from a 
final decision by the contracting officer denying his claim and supposedly has a very valid claim for a lot of money. He goes to his lawyer. The lawyer on the last day for filing that claim notice of appeal, the daughter of that lawyer is in a serious automobile accident and the lawyer doesn't get to mail the letter. And it was held in that case. It was required to be sent by mail or any other way, hand-delivered, within 60 days. It wasn't. You missed by a day. Done. You're out. Just cold-hearted. And a lot of, in the commercial world, I don't think that would stand in most cases. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that is the, um, um, it, is, it is harsh, but it's also um, jurisdictional in, in many cases. The, yeah. the board doesn't have jurisdiction if, in fact. It, but there are cases like where we have in the government and the contracting field, the differing site condition clause, where you mentioned your case where your contractor goes in and thinks he has a different uh, foundation. And so contractors can do that. And they would go to the governor and say, look, I expected this to be is what I'm going to encounter. Instead, I get this kind of soil, which is much harder to work with. And they have to give notice to the government before they start working on that situation. And what judges have sometimes said is the clause requires you give written notice of something that's different on the site, a different site condition. And you have to do it before you disturb that condition so the government can investigate. And you find situations where the contractor fails to give written notice. And so they should be thrown out and not get paid for that. Well, you'll find because judges, a lot of us are warm and wonderful people, we look for ways to find how to get around that. And we might say, oh, Mr. Contracting Officer, you were aware of that because you were on site when they went there and they played with the dirt and it's different and so you do have notice. So even though it's written, we find that you have actual notice and it's close enough. You know, the, uh, the, you know, the, the on private jobs, okay, you often have a different project manager or different superintendent than you would on a, than on a public job. Um, you know, that private job may be someone who's, who's a, a most cooperative person, likes to, <laughs> he likes everybody to be happy, you know, and so, um, you know, to move that person onto a government job where notice is so important, you know, I mean, there's a natural, there's a natural reaction that, hey, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I'm hesitant to write these, these nasty letters to the contracting officer. All right. I mean, should, 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 they, should, they, should the superintendent just toughen up here or, or what? The answer to that is clear. You need to provide notice. You need to provide written notice. You need to make sure it gets to an authorized an individual at some level. And you can get, if, you, if you're worried about doing a rough letter, find yourself someone who can write a smooth letter. You, know, you people have been so wonderful to me, and I'm sorry we have this problem. However, we've encountered this situation, and we'll do the best we can to minimize the cost of taking care of the problem. Uh, love and kisses. Uh, have a wonderful day. But you've got to do it. And there are a lot of people, obviously it's nature, that you don't want to ruffle feathers. But in the federal government, because we're protecting people, if you got the contract and your uh, contractor across the street didn't get it, and we start giving you favors, the contractor across the street can say, if I had that job, you wouldn't treat me the same way. 
and therefore you're violating the regs to treat everybody fairly to protect the public fisc. Uh, you're into those situations. So the so the average contracting officer and the average uh, resident engineer, et cetera, they're, they're, they're not being offended by getting these notice letters. They expect you to send them on, okay, when you have uh, one to assert your rights. Wait a minute, I didn't say that. <laughs> you know that uh, there are a number of people that anytime if you write a letter, it's probably going to mean additional work for them. And some people by nature don't want to be bothered uh, they just want you to do your job, and they don't need to have any additional disruptions on their record. But you got to do what you got to do. If you don't protect yourself, uh, think about cases where you have a client, and they come in and they show you that we've won this award, and we're going to make uh, uh, $100,000 profit on it. It's a small construction job. Now they have one of these issues, and they don't pursue it timely, and they spend... Uh, $50,000 on solving this problem, and they don't get their money back. So there goes half the profit from one problem. And if you have two or three problems, you're going to lose money. Contractors have to protect themselves, and knowing what is required for notice in various things, such as the changes clause, the uh, different site conditions clause, the termination for, clause, for default clause, they have to know those time dates and comply with them. Uh, you know, getting back to uh, the termination for default, a lot of times the government will issue a letter called a 10-day show-cause letter. They will send the contractor a letter saying, we are very concerned, we don't think you're going to be able to deliver on time, that you're going to uh, be in default. Uh, advise us within 10 days how you're going to uh, make us feel comfortable that, that we're going to be able to uh, receive or the contract will be completed or whatever it is. If the contractor fails to respond in 10 days, the government can terminate. And how about two days later, they respond and the government shows uh, the letter to the contracting officer, whoever it is, and, and says, wow, these are very valid reasons. We can't terminate it, but we already did. Well, the contractors could very well lose in a case like that because they failed to assure the government within the 10 days. So there are a lot of these slippery slopes that you wouldn't find that in the commercial world. And you need to know what notice is required, you need to put it in writing, and you need to get it into the hands of someone who is authorized, or at least up the chain so that uh, uh, you can help protect yourself the best you can. Oh, you know, and you've, you've mentioned cases, right? Um, so this sort of brings us to uh, the, another inquiry here, uh, which is sort of on the, the tail end, what we call the cleaning up phase here and that's the that's the that's the resolution phase all right and obviously we're talking we're talking to the person here who has the best knowledge since you were the chief judge of the armed services board of contract appeals um tell us about the resolution how contractors resolve you know close out these jobs and resolve the their their outstanding claims that they may have you find claims that are filed uh, from soup to nuts they could be just money they could be just time they could be uh uh, different site conditions, they could be changes that may or may not be authorized, uh, a whole bunch of things, the full spectrum. It can be a small little contractor, it can be a big contractor. We've had cases where the claim is $10,000 and the contract is, you know, $25,000. We've had cases where it, it's a billion dollars for the contract and it's hundreds of millions of dollars for claims. So we cover the full spectrum. Uh, the way what's done is that you draft your claim, hopefully you've provided all appropriate notices, et cetera, 
and you submit the claim to the government. Now, they're supposed to decide your claim in a reasonable period of time. If you've got a $100 million claim, uh, it's going to take a time to do it. If you've got a small claim, uh, it should be uh, not a big deal. But the government will issue what is called a COFDA, Contracting Officer's Final Decision. And that will tell you specifically how long you have to file an appeal because it's a decision you're appealing from it. So most people would think, I'm filing a claim, we call it a claim, but it's an appeal. And they will appeal that final decision. And you can go to a couple of places. One of the places is the Court of Federal Claims, and the other is to the Board of Contract Appeals. In the old days, there were like 11, 12, 13 different Boards of Contract Appeals, so your agency would have one. The Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals uh, of which I was the chief judge, is by far uh, the largest, and virtually every other board has disappeared except for the General Services Board of Contract Appeals. So if you have a contract for the General Services, you would use their board for dispute resolution, or you could go to the court. If you go to the Court of uh, Federal Claims, often what you find there are judges, and I have to be careful what I say, because I've known many of them, and some of them are very capable, very knowledgeable. But a lot of it, uh, you may have more of a political bent as to how they get there, and a number of them have a very specialized area of knowledge. They may be an expert in, let's say, insurance law or something, but a lot of them have no experience with contracts for construction and, and other types. With the Board of Contract Appeals, that before I hired anybody by law, they had to have a minimum of five years public contract law experience. So there were no newbies who would show up, and that was a big benefit. In addition, the court may issue a decision with one judge, and I have observed long ago on one week period of time, one judge issues a decision and says, based on these facts, the termination for default is wrong. Another judge, similar facts, you can't distinguish them. Based on these facts, the appeal is okay. So you can get divergent. In our case, when a judge, if I get up in the morning and uh, the dog bites me and the kid uh, is nagging and uh, the wife is, needs money from my wallet and I go to work in a bad mood and I write a decision, you're going to find other people have to participate. When I first was on the board, you had to have five signatures to get a decision out. Uh, I changed that to three because if you have three people, you have a majority, you don't need the other two. But it means that you have that group think and a lot of things can be resolved in-house to avoid those kind of situations that I just mentioned. So it's a wonderful process, except it takes so long. It's so expensive. You know, Joe, with some of your clients that come in with big cases, you can spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on experts, etc. So in order to solve the problem I had, which was being inundated with cases, we created a mediation process. In fact, uh, it was an award winning by the Office of Procurement Management uh, for coming up with this program. And we do most of our cases. They don't go to litigation. Uh, they're there, but we end up negotiating through a mediation process and most of them go away. Those that stay there generally are there for a valid reason. It may be a specific contract clause, legal issue that isn't fully defined, or something along those lines. But for the normal give and take, but 
the last case that I, or the last big case that I mediated uh, at the board. Uh, in fact, to show you how recognized we were as the experts, these people had big company, huge company uh, contract, and they authorized us to sit down and the judge who had the contract dispute on her docket uh, was told that she and I could negotiate the mediation. And if in fact it didn't resolve, that they would let her go ahead and still stay on the case and render a decision when the time was appropriate. And you don't find people doing that because in mediation, you're talking about a lot of things in the open that would never be discussed as evidence. So I was very proud of that situation. But well, and 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 for good reason. Uh, for our listeners' benefits, um, you know, Judge Williams and Judge Reba Page of the board um, wrote a uh, a law journal article in the um, I think it was in the Public Contract Law Journal about about the success of of the Armed Services Board, which was well over ninety percent uh, of hit rate of being able to resolve cases and and uh, so it's a it's a it's a remarkable statistic um, especially with a you know my experience with the with the um with the uh, court of federal claims now you got justice department lawyers there and they are much more resistant <laughs> sitting down and trying to to mediate uh, the way out of a a claim and get get it resolved than um than um taking a case to the Board of Contract Appeals where you don't have the Justice Department lawyers, you have agency counsel. But um, it's, a great, it's a great piece that you and uh, Judge, Judge Page put together. Uh, the law has been bouncing around on claims and uh, who's a, who has authority to sign a certificate, uh, you know, that uh, it's proper, it's the right amount, et cetera. But when a contractor comes to you and they're thinking about whether to, you know, negotiate, et cetera, or to actually file a claim, uh, the law was changed so when a contractor files a claim, interest starts running. And I found that to be strange because, as a quick example, a contractor has to build a building and install certain windows, and they're expensive. And the government says, oh, no, 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 you can't put the cheap ones in. you got to put the expensive ones in. And he says, oh, it's going to cost me a fortune. Here's my claim. Interest starts running. The building isn't up. The windows aren't going to be ordered for a year or two, but interest is running on the cost of those windows. And the Congress would tell you that was an incentive for contracting officers to quickly issue final decisions because often a claim would be filed and it would linger for a long time. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a great point because a lot of contractors, even, even a lot of skilled contractors, they don't, they don't make a formal claim first. They, they file a, a request for an equitable adjustment, what they call it an REA. All right. And um, so they'll, they'll and the government will come in and want to audit it. And it sits around for a year. And, and it, otherwise, it could be uh, could be it could be drawing interest if, in fact, you, you made it a claim and and triggered the contracting officer's requirement to timely <laughs> to timely to respond to that claim and issue a contracting officer's final decision. And off you go. Um, so that's the, that's the two big differences there. Um, and that interest uh, <laughs> during during periods where interest rates are up, it makes makes quite a makes quite a difference. Well, they've got to be at the bottom now. They can't go any lower. So, <laughs> so we're going. We're about to conclude here. But any other any other thoughts that you want to give the the incoming incoming contractor to the government contract world, uh, be it in keeping records or technical terms or or any other practical uh, practical advice that you you can give. 
I, I think we've highlighted where you can't know everything. You have to deal with some people who have that knowledge, like what notices are required, how to do that, etc. But another area where I'm sure you as a lawyer who have clients have to deal with is a client can come in and have a very strong case, but how do they prove damages? And like in any court, you're going to find proving damages is most difficult, and they need experts to help them. And certainly, uh, you're in a situation where you've used experts many times to help you put the claim together, and, and particularly if the claim is involving disputes for delay, disruption, acceleration. Uh, very expensive to put those kinds of claims together, but you've got to know what you're doing because we have a number of contractors who come in and they win their case, but they only win part of the money and they should win more. But like in any court, they have to bring the proof. Well, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're, you're retired from the, from, the, from the board. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean by that is that people who are struggling, those contractors out there who are struggling with government contract issues have, you know, have, uh, have the ability to, to reach out to you and um, um, through Sentinel and um, get some assistance there because it is a um, it's a road filled with a lot of opportunities and uh, and uh, and uh, and a lot of um, uh, as we said a lot of potholes. Um, so this was the first of our our podcasts. Uh, the next planned podcast will uh, will be it's anticipated we'll have uh, one of uh, another Sentinel consultant um, who is ahead of a very large um, construction group. Um, that that lived in both worlds, the commercial world and, and the government world, and they'll have a, hopefully some unique perspectives also. So, Judge Williams, thanks so much for, for joining us today and um, look forward to seeing you real soon. Thank you. Have a good day. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation.